How can we as healthcare practitioners move from just providing disease management to providing true healthcare? That is the question, and this is the answer. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast that helps you grow your practice and expand your skills as a practitioner. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for wellness-minded people and professionals who are passionate about transforming our broken healthcare system. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, and I believe that all diseases can be prevented or reversed, and I'm dedicated to empowering millions of people to go from disease and dysfunction into living the healthiest life possible. Today, we're covering a very important topic, a quite serious topic that many practitioners don't address, many practitioners don't even know about, and they really should be. Lipoprotein A, it says lipoprotein A in parentheses, and we often, we usually say LP little a. Where that came from, I don't know, it's a shortcut, easy to say. So LPA is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And I'm going to cover like what it is, how it affects the cardiovascular system, the genetic factors involved, and then testing that we can do. And then I'll go into some of the approaches, the diet, lifestyle, and supplementation approaches that we have to help bring the lipoprotein little a down. Let's start with looking at what it is. So we know that cholesterol travels through the bloodstream and it's attached to lipoproteins and those are made up of protein and fat. So the lipoproteins that we know about include low density lipoprotein, which people think of as the bad cholesterol, high density lipoprotein, which a lot of people think of as the good cholesterol. And then another one that nobody even thinks about at all in the general public, which is lipoprotein little a. I'm not gonna address a lot of the disparity in the medical community about whether LDL really is bad or whether HDL really is protective. What we're gonna focus on today is just lipoprotein little a. LPA, I may just say LPA as we go through this for shortness. It's a lipoprotein particle and it has two key components. One is something called apolipoprotein A or ApoA sometimes for short, and then LDL-like particles. So that's the mainstay of it. It resembles plasminogen, which is an enzyme that's involved in breaking down clots. That sounds good so far, but it resembles. It, it doesn't act that way. The LDL-like particles are very similar in structure to low-density lipoprotein, LDL, but it's very dense. As we know about LDL particles, there's some big buoyant ones which are fluffy and they're not the, as dangerous or atherogenic. The small dense particles, the LDL particles, are dangerous because they can easily pass through the lining of the blood vessels into the intima, the inner part of the vessels, and that's where it causes most of the damage. It's not when it's in the bloodstream, but more when it gets into the inside of the blood vessel lining. LP little a, that one is actually even more small and dense than the small dense particles, the LDL. So they more easily pass into and become part of the intima of the vessel linings and become more dangerous because once they move in there, the cholesterol can build up in the walls of the arteries. 
causing them to stiffen. Like I said, they're not so bad just floating around in the bloodstream. It's when they get incorporated into the lining, into the walls of the blood vessels that they become dangerous. So LPA, very dense, and it gets into the lining real easily. Once those particles are inside the intima, the inside of the, of the blood vessels, then they create plaques, plaques form. When these plaques form in there, they can easily break off and be transported around the bloodstream. Not a good thing. And that's where we get problems with heart attacks. These plaques can get larger and larger over time, or they can suddenly rupture. And when they suddenly rupture, that's when a lot of problems happen. That's when we can cause heart attacks and aneurysms and other things like that. LPA can cause increased clotting. And that can increase the risk of blockages in the blood vessels. LPA promotes inflammation. And we know inflammation is not a good thing for any part of the body, especially for the blood vessels and for the heart. Um, and it increases the likelihood that the plaque is going to rupture. High LPA can also lead to narrowing of the aortic valve. Um, that's called aortic stenosis. And that can be very dangerous, obviously, in the, if the valves in the aorta are blocked, are stenotic, are narrowed, we're gonna have a problem with blood flow. So chronic inflammation in the vessels can lead to buildup of calcium on that aortic valve, and that can cause stiffness. And when that valve gets stiff, it doesn't allow for the smooth flow in between, in and out. In some folks that have problems with stenosis of the aortic valve, it's just decreased blood flow. In others, they need to have surgery to prevent the rupture and to prevent more serious complications uh, or to replace the valve entirely. LDL tends to oxidize once it's inside the vessel wall. So oxidized LDL, oxidized LPA are gonna be more damaging to the body than non-oxidized. It's just floating around, it's not oxidized, it's not so much of a problem. But once it's oxidized and inside, that's when the real problems occur. The oxidized LDL, that's part of the LPA. Remember we said it was LPA and it was also LDL particles. So when those LDL particles that are inside of this LPA are oxidized, it's going to cause damage inside the vessels. So it's really, really important for us to understand the importance of testing LPA and why we need to know about it and warn people about it and test for it. Well, it can cause sudden heart attack. Somebody with an elevated level of LPA can have a sudden heart attack. It can cause narrowing of the arteries. It can lead to a stroke and it can lead to aortic stenosis. None of these things are what you want your client to be going through. And you wanna be able to predict these things if they're at risk of happening. Low LPA levels in testing have been lowered with a decreased incidence of heart failure, stroke, vascular disease, and aorta stenosis. So it's not just that we've observed that people with elevated LPA have problems, but we've also observed is that the populations that have lower levels don't have these problems. So let's delve into a little bit more depth on how you can tell if somebody's at risk. So we're going to look at genetic factors and we're going to look at lab factors. Here's the thing. LPA problems, elevations in LPA are estimated to be 90% hereditary. Very few things are estimated to be that high of a hereditary factor. Genetics show that variants linked to LPA 
correlate to a shorter lifespan. When averaging together information from more than 100,000 people, the presence of an LPA genetic variant caused an average decrease in lifespan of 1.5 years. Okay, so studies showed that all of those risk factors were present when somebody carried one of the alleles, one risk factor. People who have both homozygous have double the risk of aortic stenosis. So is this something you should be paying attention to? Absolutely. Is this something that you should learn how to test for and how to interpret the tests? Absolutely. And is this something that you need to learn what kind of diet and lifestyle and supplementation factors are going to affect this so that you can help people to live longer lives? So here's another thing. There's a gene, the LPA gene, um, and there's two RSIDs for it that we know already, um, RS9457951 and RS6415085. So if somebody has the T allele, that's linked to a higher level of, of LPA in that RS6415085. In the other risk allele, it's, they think it's better for African-Americans. So in any case, one only is all you need to have this risk factor, one, right? And if you have two, you're doubling the risk. So then how do we know if somebody has this gene, is it expressing? And in many cases, we already know, and oftentimes we can tell that they have the gene and they end up having it. We can predict that. And other times we test and we find out that they have an elevation and we predict that they have the gene and sure enough, they do. So they're very, very closely correlated. So we can measure it. It's not an expensive test. It probably costs anywhere from $25 to $50, depending on where you have it. But unfortunately, it's a, not a routine test. It really should be included on routine blood work. How do we interpret it? That's the biggest problem. And that's where a lot of medical practitioners poo-poo and say, well, there's no real good interpretation of it. Therefore, why should we test it? But the fact of the matter is, is when it's elevated, there's a problem. There's an increase in risk factor. Some studies define it as greater than 50, 50 milligrams per deciliter. Some say higher than 28. Others say it doesn't have to get up until 90 before there's a risk factor. So you know, it's just hard to sell, right? We're people, right? These are not statistics, we're people. Again, I like to err on the side of caution. So if somebody is greater than 28, I'm gonna pay attention. I'm gonna take and caution them on the lifestyle factors that they can put into place. If somebody's over 90, for sure, and I'm gonna really like lay into them, especially if they have a family history, and especially, of course, if they have the LPAG, one or both of them. One study that was done on women found that LPA levels were only important in cardiovascular disease if the woman had a high cholesterol already greater than 220. So that's saying that if someone has like uh, an, a cholesterol level of 150 and an LDL level of say 75, then that person, even if they have an elevated LPA, even if it's above 90, may not have as great a risk factor. That's good news to me because I actually have the LPA uh, a single, a heterozygous. I have a mom who died at 56 of sudden heart attack. I had a dad who died at 64 of sudden heart attack. And when I got my LPA tested, it was in the 70s. I was like 75. So there's risk factor for me, which more importantly reinforces for me that I need to be careful about my diet. I need to be making sure that my nutrient levels are really good to avoid the risk factors associated with those things. 
So when somebody has an elevated LDL combined with the elevated LPA, it can significantly increase the risk. But they also say that higher levels of HDL may offer some protection. So like everything else, right, we, it's not black and white. But I think you need to, as a functional practitioner, as any kind of health practitioner, be aware that this is a risk factor. Test people for this. It's not expensive, especially if they have a family history of heart disease, especially if they also you've tested and seen that they have a genetic risk. So this is something you need to be testing. I think everybody should at least have a baseline early on if they have a family history of heart disease and the LPA gene. You know, at least starting at 50 for people who don't necessarily have that family history, but just to see so that we can intervene early, right? We don't want to wait until we have a heart attack in order to prevent a heart attack, right? Sometimes it's too late, as in the case with my parents. So it's really important that you recognize the people who are high risk due to elevated LPA. And again, it's not tested very routinely. Test it, please. Do yourself a favor. Do your patients and clients a favor. Test their LPA. So what if you test the people and they have an elevated LPA and they also have a genetic factor and they have family history like me? Then what are you going to do? How are you going to help them to modify their diet, to modify their supplementation, their nutrients to control this? Well, here's the thing. There's no consensus about what the best diet is for heart disease. There's so much out there that's conflicting and people believe what they want to believe. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about some of the supplements that uh, have been found to be helpful, right? Because that's the easy thing to get people to comply with, at least initially, right? Niacin is um, vitamin B3 and it's been used for decades to lower the risk of heart disease. And we know that it can reduce like one to three grams a day can reduce LPA levels by an average of 30 to 40%. That's huge. And it has to be the flushing kind of niacin. It doesn't work with like the niacinamide and other kinds that aren't flushing. But here's the issue. Taking one to three grams a day of flushing niacin is not easy. Not easy at all. But there's a way that you can teach people how to gradually build it up until they get there. But they have to be diligent and they have to not skip days. So you basically start with a little pinch. I have powdered niacin and the powdered niacin is like if you take one of those little tiny pinch type spoons and it's probably about somewhere between 39 and 50 milligrams of niacin. But if you haven't taken it before and you tell your patient to go ahead and take this, they may get a bad flushing reaction. Most people on that low level won't get a bad flushing reaction. They'll just get a mild flushing reaction. When I say flushing reaction, it just feels like all of a sudden you have this sunburn over your whole body and an itching sensation. So you start with that a little bit. They take that same low dose once a day until they no longer get that flushing reaction. Then they increase that to twice a day. Then they increase it to three times a day. When taking that little dose three times a day no longer causes the flushing reaction, that's when they start to increase it. You can increase it the next day. So no, those three doses don't cause any problems. You increase it a little bit the next day. You can double it and see how it goes. If they get a bad flushing reaction and they complain, then you tell them to lower it down to somewhere in between. Most people can double it at that point. They'll get a little mild flushing reaction. Usually will go away in 15, 20 minutes. And then the next time they, they just gradually keep increasing it. 
you can eventually get up to a thousand to three thousand. And of course, a thousand to three thousand depends on the person's size, right? Five foot one person is going to need a lot less than this big, you know, football player type, right? So we adjust it. Niacin can be very helpful. I find that getting people to be compliant with those high doses is challenging. So you got to work with them. A study showed that ginkgo biloba, what's well known for opening up circulation to the brain, um, actually helped to reduce LPA levels. The study participants took 120 milligrams twice a day and got a 23% decrease in LPA. Now, the thing you have to watch for with ginkgo, I get a bad headache from ginkgo. So I can't take a lot of ginkgo. I take it and it blood rushes to my head and I get a bad headache. So flushing on the niacin, headache on the ginkgo. So you try it, you play with it. I'm a big fan of low and slow, low and slow. Low dose, go slowly with increasing it. Berberine, we all know about berberine. Berberine's found in Oregon grapefruit. It's found in uh, golden seal, barberry, other herbs like that. So berberine can also be found in a concentrated formula that's been extracted from some of those plants. And it's been shown to decrease cholesterol levels, but also LPA. So this is a helpful supplement if somebody can tolerate it. It also helps to lower blood sugar, right? And so when something lowers blood sugar, it's also decreasing the insulin secretion, and it's also decreasing the risk of cardiac disease. So berberine can be an overall good one. And you can start by having them get some Oregon grape and make, make a decoction and have some liquid or get a little uh, tincture of Oregon grape root or golden seals kind of uh, still on the endangered list. So I don't use it a lot unless I really need it. Um, but you can also, like I said, get concentrated berberine and play with it. Other things, vitamin C. Doses vary from person to person, but I always recommend bowel tolerance or uh, something like a liposomal vitamin C in the neighborhood of about 10 grams a day. But that's expensive, right? That can be super expensive. When combined with these other things, there's a cumulative effect. And L-carnitine, the amino acid L-carnitine, which also helps support energy in the mitochondria. The big question of the day, how do people lower their cholesterol with diet? Such a controversy. There's the carnivore people saying, LDL, saturated fat, none of that has anything to do with your cholesterol. And besides, cholesterol is not a good marker for heart disease. There's a lot of research that says indeed it is. I'm not going to argue that here. But what I want to emphasize is that a whole foods diet with lots of plants with antioxidants can be very supportive of cardiovascular health. So we need to look at that and it can lower the levels of cholesterol, LDL, LPA. They did a study and it was a clinical trial. It looked at people and put them on a four weeks of a plant-based diet. It doesn't say what exactly was in that diet, but it lowered LPA by an average of 16%. So if you combine a whole foods, plant-based diet, rich in antioxidants with some of these other herbs, especially with the niacin, if you can get them to take that much, you're going to see some shifts right, in the LPA. But the other thing is, sometimes you don't see the LPA go down as much as you would like, but what you do see is overall cardiac health. So you have to look at the overall health. Like for example, we haven't found any studies that show that fish oils or uh, omega-3 fats will lower the LPA, but what they do is they lower LDLs in general. So just by regard of lowering LDLs, we may see that and we may see that happen. So I recommend that people put a diet that has 
fruits and vegetables to their tolerance for their blood sugar because elevated blood sugar is going to put them at risk. Nuts and seeds and whole grains if they tolerate whole grains. I personally don't tolerate whole grains, so I don't eat them. And some, this study showed one ounce or less of meat per day. Okay, so you're going to help each person. Each person is individual. So don't just figure that, oh, this is the way it goes for everybody. But each person's individual. You'll work with the person. You work with their numbers. You test regularly to see how it's going. And that's the best we can do, right? We have to pay attention to this. If their LPA is elevated, they have a higher risk. They have to be much more careful than somebody else who doesn't have that genetic risk factor or that elevated number. What are we going to do, right? You guys have the power to help people to stay alive, to help people to avoid unnecessary cardiac risk, to help people to lower the risk factor numbers and get them healthier. And you can do that with a combination of dietary factors, herbs, as we talked about, like berberine and ginkgo, and nutrients like carnitine and vitamin C and niacin. And niacin seems to have the most impact if we can get the compliance. So you have the power to help people to get well. You have the power to coach and guide people to the right lifestyle choices, create customized diet and lifestyle programs for them. So if you're interested in going deeper with this topic, go on to inemethod.com and learn about our coaching certification for practitioners who want to really master nutritional endocrinology. Check out our other episodes and really share this with other people. And until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to Reinvent Healthcare. We are part of the movement to change healthcare for the better. If you liked this episode, leave a rating and a review. And for more resources to support you in growing a thriving and fulfilling practice, visit our website at inemethod.com.